Well, once upon a time, there was a man who built an ice pond in the middle of his pasture. On a cold, wintry day, a shepherd grazing his sheep decided to take a shortcut across the pasture. He wanted to lead his sheep over the icy pond, but the sheep wouldn't follow. The owner of the pasture, he saw what was happening. He pointed to the shepherd and his sheep, and then he said to his wife, he said, Honey, let's be careful. That guy is trying to pull the wool over our ice. You know what kind of joke that was, don't you? That was a bad joke. Last week, we talked about shepherds. This week, we'll talk about sheep. In chapter 5, verse 2, Peter calls the church the flock of God. As followers of Jesus, we are all sheep in God's pasture. And God has set shepherds or pastors over the sheep. God's flock is made up of both sheep and shepherds. The sheep need good shepherds, but the shepherds, they need good sheep. Last week, we learned how to spot a good shepherd. Don't let anyone pull the wool over your eyes. A faithful shepherd serves willingly. He feeds the sheep. He doesn't beat the sheep. He isn't in it for the money. He loves God and he loves people. A true shepherd is an example, not an exception. He leads. He doesn't lord or boss around the sheep. And the shepherd isn't looking for a reward from the flock. He's not expecting the sheep to take a collection for him. His eyes are on the chief shepherd. For he knows when Jesus appears, he will receive a crown. But if you're a sheep and you want to do something nice for your shepherd, here's what you can do. You can be a good sheep, not a bad sheep. Don't try to pull the wool over his eyes either. Don't just sort of smooth up to the pastor on Sundays and then get together with other sheep to take a bite out of him during the week. Be submissive and be humble and be vigilant and be steady even in tough times. In the flock of God, we need sincere shepherds, but we also need willing sheep. Last week, we discussed the shepherds, faithful leaders. This morning, we're going to close 1 Peter by how to be a good sheep. We're going to talk about faithful followers. And Peter begins his advice to the sheep, his sheep talk, if you will, in verse 5. He says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. The job of the sheep is to let the shepherd lead. In a word, submit. Now, in verse 5, Peter puts the whole matter in the context of kids and elders. And doesn't life itself teach us that we all should respect the wisdom of people older than us? Gray hair and wrinkles doesn't mean outdated and obsolete. It means the owner has been around the block a time or two. He or she has learned a few lessons that could be important to us. Here's the problem, though. Younger people are notorious know-it-alls. Have you ever noticed this? Once there was a parent who hung a poster on his teenager's bedroom door. Teenagers, tired of being hassled by your stupid parents? Act now. Move out. Get a job. Pay your own bills. 
while you still know everything. It's been said, insanity is hereditary. You get it from your teenagers. You see, a younger person talks a lot and listens a little. When a teenage girl, she was always on the phone. Every conversation lasted over an hour. One night, her dad reprimanded her. He said, honey, please limit your calls to 20 minutes. Well, the next night, the phone rang. And the daughter answered, and immediately the father, he put her on his timer. And he was surprised when she hung up in just 20 minutes. The shocked daddy, he said to his daughter, he said, which of your friends was that? And that's when the little girl replied, oh, daddy, that wasn't a friend. It was a wrong number. Young people talk a lot and listen a little. Or or more more accurate today, they text a ton and listen a little. And this is true for both chronological teenagers and spiritual teenagers. Maybe you didn't know it, but there is such a thing as a spiritual teenager. These are believers who may be older age-wise, but they've got the know-it-all attitude of a teenager. Oh, they're quick to criticize. And they'll cop an attitude when things in the church don't go their way. They lack the big picture and they evaluate every church decision by how it affects their convenience or how it impacts them. They they look at things from a me-centered perspective. When these folks were first saved, their church could do no wrong. Now that they've been around a while, their church leaders can do nothing right. Understand, I know a lot about spiritual teenagers because... I was one for a long time. Even after becoming a pastor, I thought I knew it all. But you know, being a pastor can be humbling at times. Quite frankly, it can just knock the stuffing out of you. And after a few years, I realized that there were a few gaps in my understandings that I needed to listen up and start taking notes. I decided to try to learn as much as I could from as many people as I could. And I want you to know that's still my attitude today. Why reinvent the wheel every time you try to do something new? Why not avail yourself to other people's experiences? In fact, everybody learns through experience. I hope you know this. You learn either through your experiences or through the experiences of other people. A wise person avoids some lumps and learns from someone else's experience. He or she doesn't always have to learn things the hard way. The school of hard knocks has expensive tuition. And this is why God places shepherds over the sheep. You see, elders come in two varieties, age-wise and sage-wise. Elder doesn't necessarily just mean an older man. An elder can also be a church leader. Elder is a function in the church. Even a younger man can serve as an elder if he has a measure of godly wisdom. And here is every sheep's responsibility to the shepherd. Peter says, submit yourself to your elders. In short, let the shepherd lead. Get behind your leader's initiatives. Support his ventures of faith. Trust that he's heard from God. You know, as kids, we grew up playing the game, follow the leader. And yet somewhere along the way, from youth to adult, we grow cynical of leadership. 
especially church leadership. I'm sure part of it are the scandals and charlatans we've seen. But a big part of the problem lies in our own heart. You see, you have to be humble to be led. Once I was talking to John Corson just after Pastor John resigned his very successful church in Oregon to move down to Southern California to serve as an assistant to Pastor Chuck. And I asked John, I said, John, will you have a tough time submitting to another pastor after spending so many years as the the senior pastor yourself? And I'll never forget his response. He looked at me and he said, Sandy, it's not submission until you disagree. And it's true. Oh, it's easy to talk about humility and submission and loyalty as long as there's no conflict or no difference of opinion. The test comes when there's a disagreement. And this is true in a church or on a team or even in a marriage. Will I humble myself and trust God and get on board or will I buck the decision and express my own independence and derail the greater good? Well, Peter knows what we ought to do. He says, younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. And then he says, yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Now, younger folks need to submit to the gray hairs and the church leaders. But elders should also submit to the people under them at times. You see, if you're an older person, don't just sit back and expect the younger folks to bow to your whims. The older set should want to cater to the younger tastes. You know, I hate to say it, but in the church, I see more of this unbending, me-first, teenager mindset among older folks than I do among younger members. Older people can get stuck in their routine. They like like it their way. They resist change. And their refusal to submit can hinder a church's growth. I believe that every church should be deliberate about reaching younger people. Hey guys, they are the lifeblood of the church. You need to always remember, the church of Jesus Christ is always one generation from extinction. That's why it's imperative we pass on our faith. Chances are in 30 years I'll be pushing up daisies. That's why I need to be cultivating a few replacements to carry on God's work in our church. I hope you know not everything we've done over the years has been a style I liked. I'm getting older and my tastes are not always cutting edge. But I know the bigger picture. And I'm willing to be flexible to reach people. Humility understands it's not just about me. There's more at stake. Well, sheep need to submit to shepherds. And at times, spiritual shepherds need to submit to their sheep. We all need to humble and be submissive to one another. We have different roles, but none of us, not one of us is greater than any other. I want you to know, my door is always open to your feedback or even your rebuke. Hey, I don't live in an ivory tower. Not not hardly. I'm not very untouchable. Leave me a message and I'll call you. Send me an email and I'll reply. Hang around on Sunday nights even after the study and we'll just sit down and talk. I care about your thoughts. I hope you can learn from me and I know that I can also learn from you. Peter goes on to encourage us, be clothed with humility. And then he tells us why. For God resists the proud 
but gives grace to the humble. And understand this word resist, it means oppose. God opposes the proud, Peter warns us. It's not just that he works around them, he is outright against the proud person. If you're a little puffed up or if you're stuck on yourself, don't be surprised when you line up for life and look across the scrimmage line, you see God on the other side of the ball growling at you. Yo, I don't want that to happen. I want to be on God's team, not the other team. No one fights with God and wins. Hey, God resists the proud. He opposes them. He is against them. On God's team, the color is humility. And here Peter passes out the uniforms. He hands us our jersey. If we want to play for God, be clothed with humility. You see, here's your choice. Humility or humiliation. You can humble yourself or God will humble you. In Matthew 23, verse 12, Jesus put it, whoever exalts himself will be humbled And he who humbles himself will be exalted. In high school, I was one more stuck-up, self-righteous, prideful jerk. And I can remember the numerous times that God tried to humble me. When I played basketball, I always always liked to show off the fact that I was a starter on the team. And so during layups, I would come out and I would head to the bench and I'd take my warm-up pants off first, just so everybody would know I was a starter. I'll never forget one game going to the bench, ripping off my warm-up pants, only to discover that I had forgotten to put my gym shorts on underneath. And there I was, standing in front of the crowd in nothing but my jockeys. I was humiliated. I was embarrassed. I was slam-dunked. Scored two points the whole night. And over and over, I can look back, God trying to get my attention. You know, his attempts became more serious and less humorous. Like a wild colt, God had to break my stubbornness. But he was faithful. And after battering up my dreams and letting me run off people that I loved and letting me make a mess of my life, I finally broke. I'll never forget it. It was springtime, 1980. I was driving down Five Forks Road when I pulled off into a gravel parking lot. And I can remember kneeling down at a concrete picnic table and surrendering what was left of my life to Jesus. There were no sparks. There were no fireworks. But I experienced the blessing of brokenness. And I have never been the same person since. I only wish that I hadn't been so stubborn. I could have spared myself a lot of pain. You see, if you harden your heart, your loving God will become a sledgehammer. He will do what's needed to break your hard-heartedness. In Matthew 21, verse 44, Jesus spoke of himself when he told a group of stubborn, self-righteous, hard-hearted Pharisees, he said, whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. You can fall on Jesus or Jesus will fall on you. Here again is the choice. Broke to pieces or ground to powder. You know, the Bible refers to God's people as clay in the potter's hand. But if the clay is hard and unworkable, it's worthless. 
It has to be broken and softened. You know, you've been praying to know God's will, but perhaps an unpleasant work needs to be done in you and on you first before you're ready for God's plan. Let me answer the question, broken to pieces or grinded to powder? Pieces are better than powder. It's been said, Jesus can fix a broken heart if you give him all the pieces. Humble yourself before God. Don't make Jesus humble you. There may be nothing left when he's finished. Well, Peter says in verse 6, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. If you humble yourself under God's mighty hand, he'll see to it that you get exalted. Maybe not the next day or the next month or the next year, but in due time. You see, here's the key to humility. Living in the shadow of God's mighty hand. Do you live in the shadow of God's mighty hand? You know, at high noon, when the heat is on and the sun is hot and the pressure of our circumstances is rising, the shadows all but disappear, don't they? You don't see many shadows at high noon. We forget about God's mighty hand. and We foolishly take matters into our own hands. But humility is remembering the hand above us. God's mighty hand. You see, if it's all about my hands and what they can hold and what they can do, I want to grab all that I can. I'll grab while the grabbing is good. But when I factor God's mighty hands into the equation, I can humble myself and I can rest and I can take a back seat and I can put others first and I can consider the bigger picture. I'm assured that God's hands are big enough and strong enough to get me what I need, when I need it, in due time. In the meantime, I can serve God's higher interests. Exaltation is in His hands. And that brings me peace. And this is why Peter tells us in verse 7, Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. And here is the key to your happiness. And you know, some folks waste their whole life trying to find that key. Here's the key to your happiness. Turn your worries over to God. You know, some people try to find happiness by eliminating troubles and worries or even pretending that they're not real. According to Psychology Today magazine, in 2008, 4,000 books were published on the subject of obtaining happiness. 4,000 books. That's up from 50 in the year 2000. We're preoccupied with wanting to be happy. In a Newsweek article, Julie Baird, she commented that despite Oprah cheeriness and positive thinking and visualizing greatness and life coaches and prosperity theology, Americans as a whole are gloomier people. She concludes, we're urging positivity while our circumstances are rotten. You see, here's the truth that our culture, even some Christians, have been conditioned to ignore. Just wishing your troubles away won't make them go away. Julie's article suggests mass delusion has taken over America. Remember, Peter was writing to people with real problems. Real people with real problems. 
And he doesn't write glibly and tell his readers to just look on the sunny side. Oh, no. It's hard to look on the sunny side when your property's being confiscated and you're being discriminated against in the workplace and you're being persecuted for righteousness and for Jesus' sake. No, Peter tells these battered believers that are reading his letter to own their cares, to own their problems, but then to cast them onto the God who cares for them. See, you need to take your cares and put them into the mighty hand of God under which you've bowed. And then keep putting them there. You know why? Because they have a way of crawling out and coming back. They're like a stray cat. Have you ever tried to get rid of a cat? Maybe this is a little too much for some of you to bear, but some people, this probably applies to some people out there somewhere. Have you ever tried to get rid of a cat? Put it in your car, drive it a long way away, kind of throw it off at the side of the road? I know it doesn't apply to everybody, but maybe some of you. And you, and you kind of let it out, you know, hoping you've gotten, gotten it too far away. you kind of gotten rid of the cat, you know, and, and then you drive back and a few hours later, look, looks back on the porch, you know. Right back again. You can't get rid of a stray cat. You know why you can't get rid of a stray cat? That's because you fed it. And you've milked it. And you've nurtured that cat before you decided to let it go. That's why it comes back. And that's why your cares come back after you've given them over to God. You've got to stop feeding them. And stop milking them. And stop nurturing them. Live under the shadow of God's mighty hand, not in the light of what you've put into His hand. We've all got to learn to take our cares and turn them into prayers. Once a friend of mine gave me some great advice. He said, Sandy, always turn your cares over to God before you go to bed. He's going to be up all night anyway. And speaking of cats, Peter also had a problem with stray cats. He tells us in verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring cat or a lion, seeking whom he may devour. Reminds me of the female lion tamer. She was a drop-dead, beautiful blonde who just had a special way with animals. I mean, with the flick of the whip, she could make wild lions lay their head down in her lap and gently nuzzle up to her and and cuddle up next to her. Once when her show was over, there was a heckler in the back. He shouted, oh, that's nothing. I can do that. And that's when the ringmaster, he challenged him. He said, okay, if you can do that, step into the ring. And the man answered back, sure, just get the lion out of there first. (laughs) Hey, I can relate. When I get home, I like to cuddle up with my lion tamer. I've got a drop-dead gorgeous blonde with whom I love to snuggle. But there's no snuggling and cuddling in my home until I get the lion out. And likewise, there's no peace in the church until we deal with this mangy lion. Satan is the roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he roams into our homes and into our church trying to wreak havoc and stop the snuggling. 
You know, the devil hates snuggling. I'm convinced of this. Marital snuggling and Christian snuggling. This is why maintaining your happiness requires being sober and vigilant. This world is not a playground. It is a battleground. And we have an adversary who wants to do us harm. Satan distracts and he discourages. Jungle experts say that the roaring lion is not really the one you have to worry about anyway. He's just the decoy. You see, when innocent little Bambi comes strolling down the path, the roaring lion, he jumps out in front of the deer and he snarls and he growls and he makes these fierce noises. But that's really all that he can do is roar. See, he's old and he's toothless. But he still remembers how to look menacing. In reality, though, he's harmless as a kitty cat. And yet the old roaring lion strikes fear into the heart of little Bambi. And when she sees him, she spins around in the path and she flees in the opposite direction right into the jaws of the young lions waiting for the kill. Christians need to understand that Satan is a roaring lion. Hey, Satan is toothless. Jesus has declawed the lion. He's more like an alley cat today. By the power of Jesus on Calvary's cross, Satan was rendered harmless. The only way he can defeat you now is through fear and intimidation. Satan still knows how to muster up a good roar. And if you succumb to your fears or your doubts... He'll have his way. He'll distract you from the path you're on. The devil will discourage you in your walk with God. You'll spin around. You'll head in the opposite direction. And you'll run right into the teeth of trouble. Hey, this is why we need to resist him steadfast in the faith. Verse 9. Don't run. Resist. Stand strong. Refuse to back down or turn around. Peter says, be steadfast in your faith. Dig into the batter's box. Expect some opposition. Find some sure footing. Brace yourself for the long haul. I love James chapter 4 verse 7. It teaches us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Notice, this is a promise. We have been promised that if we put up a resistance against Satan, he'll be forced to flee from us. I love Ephesians 6. Paul describes the spiritual armor that God supplies each believer. It's our protection from the enemy. He talks about the belt of truth and the helmet of salvation and the sandals of peace and the sword of the Spirit and the breastplate of righteousness. God's protective armor covers almost every area of our body, our head, our chest, our feet, our guts, our legs. Every part of your anatomy is covered except... The back. No armor for the back. And this is why if we tuck tail and retreat, we make ourselves vulnerable. Peter tells us, resist the devil. Don't flee. Resist the devil. Never, ever retreat. And then verse 9 adds, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Here's some great encouragement. You are not alone. Believers in all ages and in every culture have had to fight the same three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And victory 
has been obtained by them all. Similar prayers have been offered up in similar struggles as yours. And those who've prayed those prayers have received help and strength from God. And then Peter starts winding down his letter in verse 10. He says, but may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered for a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And notice the four ways that Peter prays for his readers. Here's how I pray for us. Perfect or complete. God, finish what you started in our lives. Establish. Make us unmovable. God, end our shaky faith. Strengthen, Lord. Add muscle to our faith so we can do great works for you. And then settle us, Lord. Settle us, Lord. Help us to get comfortable in our new skin. As believers now, help us to embrace all that our identity in Christ involves. And God, help us look to our future. Do you see it? Do you see your future? I can see your ultimate end. And it's not a foreclosure. Or a layoff. Or a downsizing. Or a sickness. Or a spate of trouble. In Christ Jesus, God has called you and I and all true believers to join in His eternal glory. That means heaven and new bodies and new capacities and new environments and new appetites. It means the breath of God and the likeness of God finally and the love of God and the pleasures of God and the glory of this word glory. The word glory means heaviness. And one day all the blessings that God's mighty hand can hold will be yours. You are destined For his eternal glory. But when? Our concern is always when, isn't it? When are we going to get there, mommy? When are we going to get there, daddy? We want to know right now. And yet Peter says after. He tells us when. After you have suffered a while. Notice, just a while. For compared to God's eternal glory Our remaining suffering is just a short while. And yet you say, wait a minute, Sandy. Man, a bankruptcy is going to scar my record for seven years. My baby will have to live with this the rest of his life. This sickness can never be cured. How can you say the time remaining is a little while? Hey, your hardship may not be a little while on any earthly timeline, but compared to eternity Whatever suffering is required lasts just a little while. This is what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17. He said, for our light affliction, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. In Paul's 30-year ministry, he was stoned and robbed and shipwrecked and beat multiple times and imprisoned. Oftentimes, he went without sleep and shelter and food and warmth and respect. But in looking back on it, it was all just a blip on the screen. It was a little while. It was just for a moment, he says, compared to the glory and the beauty and the heaviness and the blessing that was awaiting him in heaven. 
you really need to realize that your first few seconds in heaven are going to be so grand and so glorious and so far beyond what you could dare imagine or possibly describe that it will more than make up for 10 lifetimes of suffering and persecution. If you're full of anxiety today, kick back, man. Take a chill pill. In a little while, you'll see. Now, Peter closes with a few personal remarks, which means Peter was a pastor with pals. He had some friends, and he cared about his friends so much so that he uses up a little sacred space here, a little of the sacred text to give them a mention. He writes in verse 12, By Silvanus, or Silas, our faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Notice Silas was also Paul's friend. He was Paul's traveling companion on his last two missionary journeys. But here he's with Peter. And apparently he was Peter's stenographer. He was the one who penned the letter as Peter dictated it to him. This letter was, quote, by Silvanus. Verse 13, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you. It's possible Peter wrote this letter from the literal city of Babylon, and yet there's no record or tradition that ever says Peter traveled that far east. A better interpretation would be to take his reference as spiritual Babylon. For Rome, a city that Peter did visit, became a later capital of Babylonian paganism. Thus she who is in Babylon would be the church at Rome. And then Peter writes, the church greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Peter had the same mentoring relationship with Mark that Paul had with Timothy. John Mark was Peter's protege. He was Peter's son in the faith. It isn't interesting that Peter was an elder who was cultivating younger people to replace him. The early church fathers, Irenaeus and Eusebius, tell us that Mark's gospel was actually the reflections of Peter that were recorded by Mark. And then the letter closes. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Not a kiss of lust, but a kiss of love. You know, four times in the New Testament we're told, greet one another with a holy kiss. And you can tell the difference in kisses, can't you? I mean, a holy kiss is pure. It's compassionate, not passionate. It's caring, not craving. And a holy kisser doesn't just target the cute girls. But everybody. This is one commandment we don't often obey. Greet each other with a holy kiss. You know, of course, customs differ over time, and, and they differ from culture to culture. In the Middle East today, you'll find men pecking each other on the cheek. That's kind of a custom there. Any of you guys kiss me on the cheek, I'm probably going to pop you in the nose. I'll take a handshake from the dudes. But here's the point I think Peter's making. In the New Testament church, it wasn't just enough to say you loved one another. You needed to express it in a tangible way. In America, we aren't that expressive. Christians particularly 
You know, they think they're going out of the way to shake hands and hug. Oh my, that's over the top. We save hugs for weddings and funerals. But I think if Peter were among us today, he'd expect more. Maybe a high five. Maybe a fist pump. Maybe even a chest slap. Something like that. At the very least, a hearty handshake. Well, Peter signs off. He says, peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And here's 1 Peter in a nutshell. Don't let Satan pull the wool over your eyes. When the fiery trial comes, and trust me, it will, don't think some strange thing has happened to you. Remember, life is a test. It's only a test. May you pass all of your tests with flying colors.